The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest strikes on the Ukrainian capital, analyse the delicate diplomatic relationship between Russia and Israel, and ask why Russia is attacking Ukrainian energy infrastructure. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 18th of October, day 237. And today I'm joined by assistant comment editor Francis Durnley and The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, James Rothwell, who's talking to us from Jerusalem. I started off by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, it's been another significant 24 hours with the strategic incentive behind the drone strikes that we discussed at length yesterday becoming increasingly clear. As we speak, several powerful explosions are rocking Kyiv as Russia launches a massive attack on energy facilities across the country today. We know that several people have died in drone attacks in Kyiv and the northeast city of Sumy. Kyiv itself is telling Ukrainians to prepare for blackouts across the country after these strikes. And I'll quote from the deputy head of Zelensky's administration. The situation is critical. Zelensky himself has said that 30 percent of Ukraine's power stations have been destroyed. But it's important to emphasize as a corollary to that, that actually current international reports believe that the Russians have failed to knock the grid out of being able to produce electricity for any prolonged period of time. But nonetheless, this is a very, very significant um, attack on these cities. As I speak, thick black smoke is rising from the northern district. Vitaly Klitschko, the city mayor, has said that these attacks are, are on critical infrastructure across the city. And Zelensky has added that Moscow is only confirming its, quote, murderous essence, close close quote, after strikes across Ukraine. Uh, At least one man was killed after a missile hit an apartment building in uh, Mykolaiv, and two Russian missiles have also caused serious damage to Dnipro's uh, energy infrastructure. So, as I say, David, a very significant morning on the strategic front, and um, I think that we'll be following this very, very closely today. Thanks, Francis. Let's let's go into this just a little bit. Um, so it's clear that the Russians are hitting infrastructure, specifically energy infrastructure. Um, can you talk us through why? What's the strategic thinking behind this? Well, first and foremost, I think you have to see this in the context of Russia is now willing to attack and prioritise civilian infrastructure as a direct consequence of its battlefield setbacks. That's certainly the British MOD's perspective, that being the Ministry of Defence. In an intelligence briefing today, the MOD has said that, quote, as Russia has suffered military setbacks since August, it has highly likely gained a greater willingness to strike civilian infrastructure in addition to Ukrainian military targets. 
it is highly likely that a key objective of this strike campaign is to cause widespread damage to Ukraine's energy distribution network. So that is the, I think, strategic incentive here. Is It's a direct consequence of the incredibly successful counteroffensive that Ukrainians um, launched um, uh, several months ago now. Um, but yes, the I think the other side uh, or other way of thinking about this and, and underlining it is that ultimately we may not be talking about this in a strategic context, but ultimately these, is, these blackouts are more than just blackouts. They are war crimes. These are direct attacks on civilians. When you lose energy, of course, you lose the ab- people the ability to be able to uh, warm their homes. Um, other vital infrastructure, hospitals, etc., are directly impacted by this. So this is a really, really serious um, uh, thing to, for, for, for Russia to do. And that is why, of course, there has been such an increase in the criticism, condemnation and increase in rhetoric from, from Western powers yesterday and today as a consequence of these actions. The other, I think, important thing to just talk about in this context as well is that it's another example I think of where perhaps the West could have been more proactive I think it was fair to assume that these kind of infrastructure sites strikes would be taking place and nonetheless I, I don't get the sense that that the West has been preparing for this and has been able to offer perhaps alternatives uh, of, of, of energy supplies etc I don't know that for certain of course this may be happening, happening behind closed doors but it seems that the West has been caught slightly off guard and and that's not necessarily a, a, a particularly good look. But as I say, that said, it doesn't appear that these strikes have been wholly successful in the way that Russia intended. So that is perhaps some evidence that, that there has been some forward planning from the part of the Ukrainians. Thanks, Francis. And just before we cover some other updates, just staying with energy, there's some worrying news out of uh, Zaporizhia. Um, a, a kidnapping by Russian forces. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, we've talked about Zaporizhia a lot on this podcast, so I won't go into all of the details and complexities about it, but I think we should see this in the context of the renewed strikes um, on on these energy infrastructure by the Russians is, is what has occurred now at Zaporizhia. As you say, there's been two senior officials have been kidnapped. The whereabouts of them are unknown. This isn't the first time, of course, that this has happened. Now, the, the two um, persons concerned is... The the head of information technology and the assistant to the plant's director. Um, and this is according to the um, to, to, to sources on, on Telegram. At present, nothing is known of their whereabouts or condition, is what has been said and released in a statement. Now, it's worth contextualising this that the plant has already been forced to rely on backup power after it's been rocked by further strikes, cutting off its external power supply. So I think... This is just another attempt that should be seen, as I say, in the context of what's happening across Ukraine, which is an attempt by the Russians to take out the um, foremost energy suppliers um, of the civilian population. But obviously the the concerns around Zaporizhia specifically uh, relate to the nuclear threat that it could pose if, you know, when, when a, a power plant loses energy, things can go wrong. As simple as that. And so that is why there, is, there are renewed concerns about what's taken place there this afternoon. Thanks very much, Francis. Just one more question to you. Uh, we've heard about a deadly uh, crash. A Russian military plane has crashed um, close 
to the border with Ukraine. Um, absolutely striking images, striking visuals. The, the pilot bails out seconds before his plane hits a, a, an apartment block. Um, could you just bring us up to date with that? What should we know? Yes, well, this is in a southwest uh, town in, in, in Russia, and at least 13 people, including three children, have been killed after this Russian military plane crashed into this residential area. The Ministry of Emergency Situations has said rescuers have completed the search of the rubble and found 10 more bodies, further to the ones that were discovered yesterday. Now, I think it's not uh, something that is militarily significant, aside from the fact that this is just another example of how when you launch a war like this, you can never predict all of the consequences. And now this is going to be a very, very embarrassing spectacle for Moscow. These images are being broadcast domestically as well as internationally. And um, it used to be part of the Soviet doctrine was this idea that you would never crash your plane in residential areas. And there are all sorts of sort of stories of, of Russian pilots in the past sort of sacrificing their own lives rather than than crashing uh, planes on residential areas so the very fact that the pilot has survived this is is as i say not a good look for the kind of propaganda that russia likes to to put out um but i think also we should just see this in the context of of, of the extortionate cost of these kind of planes and when you lose one as russia has of course been losing throughout the war um you do feel that it, it mounts up i think this is worth about 43 million US dollars something like that no no small amount so as I say it pales in significance to the strategic picture that I was just describing but nonetheless I think it's something that's that's worth worth touching on not least because I'm sure that many listeners will have seen the striking images from that in the last 24 hours Uh, Well, it's great to be joined by The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent James Rothwell uh, talking to us from Jerusalem Uh, James You've written a really big piece for The Telegraph about these new drones and what they mean for the geopolitics between Russia, Israel and Iran. So before we get into that, can we just start with a brief recap on what these drones are and how they work? Yes, so these are Shahed drones which are being sent from Iran to Russia. They're then being rebranded as Russian drones before they're used to attack civilians in Ukraine. They're relatively cheap and easy to produce Uh, My understanding is you can take mobile phone components, GPS, and fit those into the drone to make it work. And they're almost like the unmanned equivalent of a Japanese World War II kamikaze pilot um, in that they just drive straight into the target and blow up, which is what makes them such such an alarming and, and, and even terrifying sight for civilians who are in the area at the time. So the Ukrainians have said that they want more air defence technology from the West. Um, Some have mentioned Israel. Before we get into how the Israeli air defence works and whether it might be useful or not for for Ukraine, can we talk a little bit about Israel's relationship with Russia? and Why is it so delicate at the moment? There are several reasons why it's such a delicate diplomatic relationship. The first is that in Israel, which has a population of roughly 9 million people, you've got around 1 million Russian speakers and you've also got at least half a million, perhaps more now since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians in Israel too. And there seems to be a concern on Israel's part that any significant decisions they may take via via their existing relationship with Russia could slightly destabilise the the cohesion of of, of the population because you're looking at a country where in effect one in nine of its inhabitants are are, to all intents and purposes, uh, Russian. So that's one concern that they've got. The second, which is 
very complicated, but the, the easiest way of putting it is this. Um, Israel, over the last few years, has been launching a lot of attacks on Iranian targets in Syria, where Russia also has a significant military presence. Uh, Russia basically acknowledges uh, Israel's claim of a right to self-defense in launching these attacks on Iranian targets in Syria. And as a result, so far, Russia has been turning a blind eye to Israeli activities uh, on those Iranian targets in Syria. And there seems to be a concern that that status quo might change if Israel were to take a more, uh, a more clear stance on its support for Ukraine, such as, uh, for example, providing air defense technology. And then the third reason that it's a bit of a difficult relationship largely relates to the fact that Israel so far has tried to stay more or less neutral in this conflict. The invasion has been condemned uh, by the Israeli government, but it was quite late to get to that point. And Yair Lapid uh, did also condemn the attacks on uh, Kiev without specifically mentioning drones. But what I think is interesting about the dynamic between uh, Israel, Iran and Russia at the moment is this. Um, during the three years I've, I've worked here as the Jerusalem correspondent, Israel's always been so vocal about warning its Western allies about Iranian influence abroad. It's, it's one of the main drums that they bang, if you like, in terms of um, expressing their interest to their partners. And yet, despite these awful scenes that we've, uh, that, that we've been shown of, of Iranian drones being used in Ukraine on civilians, Israel uh, has, has stayed largely quiet about that. And I think that basically ties to a deep reluctance uh, in the current Israeli government. There are, of course, elections coming in two weeks, uh, but deep reluctance in the current Israeli government to rock the boat. They may even be concerned about Russia launching what's called hybrid warfare on Israel in retaliation for providing air support. Um, hybrid warfare, is, is, as you guys know, is something that Russia's used on Ukraine. It's sort of non-military means of, of undermining and destabilizing a country through cyber attacks and, and so on. There may be a concern uh, that something like that could, uh, could happen, which is holding them back, perhaps, from the air defense support. And finally, uh, Russia has already threatened to close down the Jewish agency in Russia, which facilitates the emigration of Russian Jews into Israel. Uh, that's not something that, that Israel wants to see happen. And it may well have been uh, suggested to them via diplomatic channels, perhaps. I, I'm speculating that, uh, that that agency will be shut down if, if Israeli air support goes to Ukraine. So those are all of the plates that they're having to spin at the moment in terms of their, their very sensitive relationship with Russia. Thanks, James. You, you mentioned domestic instability in the first part of your answer there, and you said how there are elections coming up in Israel. How is the invasion um, playing in Israeli politics? Is it something that politicians are talking about? Is it something that's mobilizing people um, or for, for any of the parties? Um, what, what does the situation look like there? Well, it's a really interesting question because one might assume that any election happening at the moment uh, would have... Russia, certainly, and, and the war in Ukraine at the centre of it. But I haven't really picked up on that uh, in Israel. And I'm, I'm working on a couple of stories about the election at the moment. Uh, certainly, uh, Ukrainians in Israel are, are obviously completely horrified by what's happening. A significant number of Russians are too, uh, as is the case with Russians living in exile uh, in, in other countries. Uh, it's, it's a tricky one, you see, because... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's Israel's longest serving prime minister, he was kicked out uh, recently and now he's trying to get back into power. 
He's always been known as having a close friendship with Vladimir Putin. And one might presume that that would stand to hurt him in the election coming up. But the strange thing is that I haven't, I haven't sensed that. I, I think that a lot of people think of Benjamin Netanyahu as a sort of, uh, a sort of master of communication and uh, a sort of diplomatic wizard. And it may be that he actually plans, if he does end up back in power, to stay neutral um, and, and, and to not sort of get into the business of, of a full-throated diplomatic and, and military support of, of the West and Ukraine. But it, it just hasn't, it doesn't seem to have been playing out uh, in the campaign as much as one might have anticipated. I think a big part of that actually is election fatigue. I mean, there have been so many elections in, in Israel uh, over the past couple of years. They, they're happening almost every year now, more or less. And I think a lot of people have already made up their demand, made up their minds on who they're going to vote for. And it may well be that the that current events like the war in Ukraine are not are not pushing them to change their position. So we've spoken about Israeli-Russian relations. Um, could we look briefly at Iranian-Russian uh, relations? Is it, I mean, is it clear to you what the Iranians are getting out of this 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 arrangement by supplying drones? What what's happening between Russia and Iran? It's not clear to me, and I'm not even sure it's clear to the Iranians at the moment what they get out of this relationship. Um, and, and it is a relationship. It, it seems to be a new emerging security alliance between Iran and Russia, which has concerned a lot of people because I think they see potential parallels between that and the alliance building that we saw in the run-up to World War I. Um, it, it's clear how Russia benefits from this. Uh, their military supply chain is in trouble, not just because of heavy military losses in Ukraine, but also because of the sanctions, uh, which is disrupting that military supply chain. Uh, the quick provision of these drones from Iran uh, is not so much replenishing their supplies, because drones are a new development, but they're, but they're adding capabilities in places where uh, there were not such, such weapons before. Um, and in terms of what Iran stands to gain from this, there has been some speculation, which is based purely on the fact that Iran's building a nuclear program, uh, that Iran might possibly be seeking Russian nuclear expertise or Russian technology. I'm a little bit sceptical of that argument because people are really concerned about the idea that an Iranian nuclear bomb is, is, is almost imminent, you know, that it could be that it could be completed very soon indeed. In other words, they may be on the brink of making one without external support. Um, the other big domestic issue for Iran at the moment is huge unrest, the mass uprising against the Iranian regime over the murder in police custody of Masa Amini. Um, again, one might be led to speculate that perhaps the Iranians are seeking uh, support overseas and putting down that rebellion. Uh, but again, that, that's a big piece of speculation. And it could come down to something much more visceral than that, which is that the Iranian... The Iranian mindset seems to be very much one which uh, is dead keen on embarrassing the West, causing trouble for the West, humiliating the West, disrupting the West. If they believe that sending these drones and possibly ballistic missiles to Russia will contribute to humiliation for the West, that may be enough for them. Thanks, uh, James. Can we talk very quickly about um, the, the systems that, that Ukrainians are interested in? Um, what do we know of Israeli air defence? Uh, and can you talk a little bit about why, it, how it might play out if it was used in Ukraine? Would, would, you know, would, it, would it be useful? Would it work? The, the main headline-grabbing component of Israeli air defence is the Iron Dome system, which is extraordinarily sophisticated, very expensive, and the Israelis have used it with great success in intercepting rockets fired by 
Palestinian militants in, in Gaza towards Israeli towns and cities. It's made them a sort of world leader in air defense, and that's why the Ukrainians have expressed an interest in getting support from Israel. The problem is that when you speak to people here about whether the Iron Dome is a good fit for the war in Ukraine, they point out that the Iron Dome is very good at intercepting homemade Palestinian rockets, but it's not so good at intercepting ballistic missiles. And also, Israel is an absolutely tiny country compared to Ukraine, so it's not as hard to get batteries all over the place ready to intercept all of those missiles or, or rockets. What I would add as a caveat to that is that during the May 2021 war between Gaza and Israel, there were reports in Israeli media that Iron Domes were very good at intercepting drones, which does raise the possibility, no matter what might be said in Israel, that the Iron Dome might actually be a good fit for Ukraine if it's only being used to take down drones and not more sophisticated weaponry. And the other thing to stress is that I'm not sure the Ukrainians are necessarily asking just for Iron Domes. I think what they want is expertise, they want experience, they want the sharing of knowledge. Um, Israel's also very good at radar detection. Um, They've also, my understanding is that when drones are shot down by Israel, which is happening nearly all the time, it's not a case of someone pointing a rifle in the air and and shooting it down. They're even scrambling jets or, or helicopters to intercept it. And I think it's that expertise that the Ukrainians are really keen on. And the really interesting question is, whether Israel can lend some non-Iron Dome technology and some expertise to Ukraine without angering Russia and blowing up that very sensitive relationship that we were discussing earlier. Thank you so much, James. Just before I bring in Francis, who's been listening to all of this, and I'm sure we'll have quite a few questions. Um, in fact, I can see he's, he's been scribbling pretty much the entire time we've been talking. Um, just looking ahead to these elections in the next two weeks, um, how, how do you think this is going to play out? If you, I'm not asking you to speculate too much, but um, you've sort of you've, you've given us a, a very comprehensive view of the, the lay of the ground in Israeli politics and society. How do you think this might develop in the future? Well, I would say with some degree of confidence that there won't be a clear result on the night, and that's because for the last three elections I've covered over the last three years, uh, it always seems to be a deadlock uh, the morning after the election. The, the big prize in Israeli politics is to get the 61 seats for a majority, and no one's managed it yet. There's always been this really long-winded coalition-building round that follows election night, where alliances are being forged and under the, uh, the government that Israel has now, what basically happened is they had to make this patchwork coalition of lots of political parties that, that basically hate each other. And it, it hasn't been an overly stable government. That's why it collapsed. And that's why we've got elections. Um, so if I were going to make a prediction, it would be don't expect any clear winner on the night. And secondly, what everyone is discussing, because Benjamin Netanyahu is such a well-known figure, is whether he's going to succeed in making that comeback. The polls don't really show Netanyahu making a big breakthrough at the moment, and he's still shy of getting a 61 seat, uh, getting, a, getting a majority of 61 uh, seats in this round of voting. But he may be able to do it. The current government's been criticised for being a bit too compromise-led, which obviously is an inevitable result of, of it being formed from political parties with such differing views. It may be that Israelis would like a a sort of hyper right-wing government without any centrists involved. And if Netanyahu can offer that package to them, then they may go for it. 
So just very quickly, if the outcome of the election is essentially lots of wrangling uh, and days and days of, of waiting for a, for a, a government to form, um, th- does that mean that any assistance to Ukraine is, is really weeks or, or months away? That's a really interesting point. Um, what I would say on that is that while there are superficial differences in the ways that Israeli leaders interact with uh, their allies. So, for example, Yair Lapid, the current prime minister, has got a good relationship with Joe Biden, whereas Netanyahu, the guy who's trying to unseat him, has a much more fractious relationship with, with Joe Biden. Whereas those superficial differences exist in terms of their rhetoric, the Israeli establishment, if you like, is pretty uniform on matters of security and also on matters of foreign relations. So one might even argue that it's perhaps irrelevant who is at the top of uh, the Israeli system of power if the defence establishment, the military establishment, has already made an assessment that it's too risky to lend uh, air support for Ukraine. If, hypothetically speaking, an Israeli leader emerged who did want to uh, strike out and uh, start sending iron domes or other technology to Ukraine. Um, it's not going to happen anytime soon, as you say, because there will probably be a very long and tedious round of coalition building first. Uh, and that raises the prospect that if the Ukrainians are going to get air support from Israel, uh, it may not be coming for some time. Well, thank you very much for. James, for all of that. Francis, you've been listening. I'm sure you've got a couple of questions for James. I do. Thanks, James. Um, My first question just relates to these drones specifically. There seems to have been quite a lot of uncertainty about their effectiveness and exactly how accurate they are. So there's been some speculation that they are incredibly accurate, that they're able to track and use GPS to, to... to strike, you know, very, very accurately within sort of a two metre radius. And there's others who've been saying that actually these are really even more barbaric weapons because they essentially you send them off and you're never quite sure where they're going to land. I just wondered whether you had, first of all, any insights into that. Well, there may be, we talk about Iranian drones as a sort of catch-all term, this this Shahed uh, model. It, It may be that there's quite a bit of variation in the, uh, in the drones that are actually being delivered from Iran to Russia. It may be some of them have got quite sophisticated uh, components to them and some of them don't. Um, my understanding, as I said earlier, is that a lot of them have been sort of jerry-rigged together with mobile phone GPS and, and that sort of thing. There's also quite a large variety in terms of the explosive warhead that a drone can carry. And that may explain why we've been getting slightly mixed reports of, of some of some uh, drones appearing to hit exactly what they intended to do and others going off course and, and hitting something else. Um, you know, my reading, on, my reading on the way that Russia wages war, which is partly based on, you know, first-hand experience of the start of the war in February, is that, you know, we know all about the, 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 the huge civilian casualties of this, of this war and there does appear to be, and I think this was discussed on the podcast earlier, there appears to be a deliberate policy now of targeting civilian infrastructure, which is a war crime, uh, and targeting civilians themselves, which is also a war crime. Um, and to that extent, you know, the, 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 perhaps the debate about how accurate they are could be immaterial if the goal on Russia's side is just to cause as much terror, fear and destruction as possible. 
Mm, absolutely. Um, just winding it out slightly, if I may, James, I'm very interested in in this, um, what you're talking about, the nuclear deal and things like that. And one of the themes on this podcast is we've been talking about the role of, of course, the, the nuclear threat in all of this. And I just wonder how, whether in the Middle East, you've, you've got a sense that this is being followed very, very closely. Indeed, one of the concerns, of course, is that, you know, if, 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 if the sort of threats that Putin has been making are shown to work, then it sends a message to the world, you know, including Iran, that having these weapons is absolutely vital for one's long term security and military success. So I just wondered whether you had a sense of how closely that aspect of the conflict is being followed in the Middle East. It is being followed very closely, certainly by the Israelis. Um, because, you know, in a hypothetical situation where Iran does build a nuclear bomb, um, and uh, let's say this is the same hypothetical situation where Russia's uh, use of nuclear threats to scare people has worked, that probably will lead the Iranians to draw the conclusion uh, that they can start making demands and waving nuclear threats around and getting what they want as well. In other words, there are profound ramifications worldwide for Vladimir Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons because uh, it may well teach other countries who've got them or in the process of getting them uh, that they can also gain some of their strategic goals by making those same threats. And I think that's why a lot of people in the West are really serious about um, almost embracing the brinkmanship, which is integral to uh, the Russian nuclear threats, because from their perspective, if you don't stand up to Russia now, you not only lose to Russia, but you potentially show weakness to other countries like Iran, which the West has, uh, to put it mildly, an extremely difficult relationship with. And it could just cause more headaches for you there. Absolutely. I don't wish to be overly morbid, but just since we're on this subject, there's been a lot of speculation about what would occur if Iran were to get nuclear capacity in, in a way that Israel felt directly threatened. What's your feeling on what would occur in that situation? I know it may not be an imminent threat, but um, there has been speculation, say, talking about how some senior commentators are very concerned about quite how febrile things are in the Middle East. I just wanted to hear your take on that. Well, when I put the question to Israeli officials or or Israelis in general, you know, what happens if you wake up one morning and Iran is a nuclear power? The response I often get is it won't happen because we'll stop the programme before uh, that happens. Israel frequently has alluded to uh, what it describes as its own means uh, of getting rid of the Iranian nuclear program if necessary. There's been a whole string of uh, attacks by the Israelis, which they haven't acknowledged publicly, but they do indeed appear to be Israeli attacks, on, for example, the Natanz Iranian nuclear site uh, and other Iranian nuclear assets in the country. And a couple of I can't remember if it was weeks or months ago now because time has been so tightly compressed by all the crazy news we're living through. But, but there, was, uh, there was a bit of a flare-up over the Iran nuclear talks a few weeks ago. And um, I, went to a, uh, I went to a briefing, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, the, the Prime Minister publicly said, uh, you know, that, um, that Iran, as far as Israel is concerned, Iran can never get a nuclear weapon. Uh, which implies very strongly that that Israel would take matters into its own hands to stop the weapon from being completed um, almost preemptively. So that's the Israeli mindset, really, the idea being that they would would take out a a nuclear program before it became fully operational. Um, And, you know, it's it's a really tricky one. I, I think it's worth remembering that, you know, the Israelis have been warning about Iran's imminent 
discovery of or imminent completion of an Iranian nuclear bomb for, for some time. I think you could even go back to the early 1990s and you can actually read newspaper articles where Israeli leaders are warning that, that the Iranians are getting very close to, to completing a bomb. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a grey area, really, how close the Iranians are to finishing it. But, you know, you never know. You know, we, we, might, we might wake up one morning and they've got it. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for those questions. And thank you, James, for your answers. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our, our listeners to, to hear? One thing I would add, actually, that there, was, there was a very significant pilgrimage to Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. Lots of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews in Israel travelled to Ukraine despite warnings not to go to take part in that pilgrimage. And there were some reports coming out of Ukrainian media at the time that, allegedly, uh, Russia had been trying to target those Jews on pilgrimage. Now, there is a significant Jewish population in Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of Israelis in Ukraine as well. It may be worth thinking about a potential scenario where if the Russians did really decide to cause trouble and, and start targeting Israelis in Ukraine, then you, Israel may feel compelled uh, to lend more support to, to the war effort than they have so far. And that may be something else that's worth mentioning. James Rothwell, thank you very much for your time. Francis, uh, we did have one other thing we wanted to talk about. Elon Musk has been uh, tweeting again, uh, and it's impacting um, what people are talking about in, in the war, and it's impacting um, some of the geopol- geopolitical decisions. Can you talk us through how... Um, Uh, what Mr. Musk has been doing recently. Sure. Well, this has been obviously an ongoing saga that I've been covering on the podcast now for about the past fortnight. Um, The update is that Musk has said that Putin would use tactical nuclear weapons to keep the annexed peninsula of Crimea. He's tweeted this out and um, you can imagine the kind of consternation that this has caused. Again, it's all sorts of commentators are saying that this is very, very unhelpful when you have a tech billionaire, somebody who, of course, is is currently trying to buy Twitter, saying these kind of remarks. It just plays into the Kremlin narrative, Kremlin propaganda. And uh, it's, it's, as I say, being deemed very, very unhelpful. Um, the... I'll I'll read the tweet in full because I think it's worth doing so. She says, if Russia is faced with the choice of losing Crimea or using battlefield nukes, they will choose the latter. We've already sanctioned slash cut off Russia in every possible way. So what more do they have left to lose? If we nuke Russia back, they will nuke us. And then we have World War Three. So that's his his argument. Now, of course, as I've talked about in the past, there are a lot of things in there to unpack, a lot of critiques and and, uh, and, and pe- things that one can criticise Musk's analysis on. I mean, the first and foremost, I think, is, is one that's uh, around, it's not as simple as him just using a nuclear weapon, right? Like there's all sorts of protocols in place that would mean that we would be aware if there was a very serious likelihood of that taking place. Furthermore, if it were tactical nuclear weapons that we're talking about, then again, in order to prepare those into a situation where they may be utilised, they would be involved in being 
move to certain places, we would be aware of that. And no doubt the West, if it felt needed to, would be able to strike those in advance. So this idea that it is inevitable that Putin would just be in a position to to do this. Um, it, and of course, all of this assumes that these weapons are actually in a use where they can be used. And that, as I say, is also contested. Um, it all puts into question the narrative here that, that Putin would just be able to sort of press a big red button and then we're we're in the situation that we are. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that we should downplay the significance of the nuclear threat. It's been something we focus on a lot on the podcast. But nonetheless, I do think it's it, it's far, far more complicated than, than, um, than Musk's tweet suggests. I think also as well, this argument that we've already sanctioned and cut off Russia in every possible way is, is highly contestable too. I mean, I think that already uh, there's an awareness that more needs to be being done by those other countries who are still dealing with Russia, the Indias, the Pakistans, the Chinas. And I think that the, the world has more of a responsibility to set to, to stand up on that. Um, and and indeed, I think the, the, this idea that Russia will become increasingly desperate and will face no choice but to do this is again highly contestable for the reasons that we talked about at length last week. Um, the, war, the longer that the war goes on and the more domestic pressure there is within Russia, there is an argument to say that actually that means that there will be an incentive to take troops away from the front line and put them onto the streets of Moscow or St. Petersburg, um, rather than it meaning a, a necessary escalation of the war. So um, I, there's so many, as I say, very many, many different um, debates to be had on this. But that's the point, right, is that all of this is is very, very complicated Heaven knows we've been talking about this now for, for since the war began all the way back in February. And I still don't feel like at times that we've we've you know been able to scratch the surface of how complicated things could get. So the idea that one is able to condense the complexities of the Ukraine war and what could or couldn't happen in 140 characters is is is, you know, simply not not uh, not the case. And I think that Musk's. Um, deployment of his uh, of his power shall we say is as i say unhelpful unsophisticated and is rightly being critiqued as we speak ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced today by Isabel Bouchard. And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. Just before you go, listeners, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like from our foreign desk here at The Telegraph. It's called How to Be a Dictator by our brilliant China correspondent, Sophia Yan, who you will have heard on Ukraine The Latest quite a few times. Here's a sneak peek. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic, 
After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected, and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi, well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. We've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case, on my way out, I get stopped and searched, and they try to delete these. Despite ten years in power, he remains a puzzle, one we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator. Coming soon from the Telegraph. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 